and welcome to Etc. Etc. I'm your host, Og Stone. Did y'all know that the mortician doing Einstein's autopsy stole his brain? Apparently because it wasn't going to be left to scientific study. Dr. Thomas Stoltz Harvey snatched the brain and then went on the run with it, like crossing all over the U.S., being now, of course, a wanted man. I had no idea about this until I read Pierre-Henri Gaumont's excellent comic, Brain Drain, which takes this bizarre event and weaves a wonderful story around it. The artwork is fantastic as well. I even thought he made up that bit until I you know, looked it up, and yeah, it's true. I reviewed the comic for the Comics Journal, so if you're interested, check that out. Europe Comics put out the English translation, and they've been doing some really awesome stuff lately. Gentle Mind and Atom Agency, and I'm going to be writing about more of their titles as well coming up. In Young Southpaw news, I was honored that Mikey Jordan, uh, the band David Devant and his spirit wife, who if you don't know, you should check out. They're one of my favorite bands of all time. I was honored he asked me to contribute a story about William Blake to his Virtual Visions website. I've been talking about performing at Blakefest in 2019, and then we thought, you know, because I would have had to go to the UK, thought maybe next year. Then, of course, that was last year. But I'm really pleased with how the story came out. So here's a clip from the great British Blake Off. I remember back in 1992, I mentioned the Manic Street Preachers to a friend of mine, and he said, what, like William Blake? But to me, I, I would have thought, you know, that Blake would have been in Duran Duran, you know? Tiger, Tiger. I mean, woo. I guess they got around the whole writing credit issue by that being an instrumental, you know? And, and spelling Tiger with the more egocentric I rather than the more questioning Y. And that's off Seven and the Ragged Tiger too. Tiger's all over the place. Then, of course, there's that late 70s sci-fi show, you know, right around the time Duran was getting started, you know. Blake's Seven and the Ragged Tiger or in the Burning Tiger, as the case may be. Probably got outvoted on that one. Tiger, Tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. And the second song on that album is New Moon on Monday. I can't make this up. Union of the Snake, you know, with Blake's paintings. I mean, you can't tell me Blake didn't have a hand in all this. I mean, I guess if he was in Duran Duran, he you know, might have had to change his name to, you know, Taylor. And that was Coleridge. Wait, wait a minute, was Samuel Taylor Coleridge in Duran Duran? I mean, Blake had, you know, the great red dragon and the woman clothed with the sun. I mean, he wrapped her in the sun just like a tailor would. Imagine if Duran Duran came along and they had 220-year-old William Blake designing their outfits. Making their stage clothes out of different celestial orbs, you know. If you like that, the whole 13-minute story is up at virtualvisions.weebly.com. Check it out. Much appreciated if you want to share it. And I just put up the 57th Young Southpaw story, Uncle Swam Wants You. 
That's the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast. You can find that at youngsouthpaw.com and all the podcast places. My guest today first came to my attention back in 2013 when he wrote a great piece for The Quietest called Love Secret Ascension, Coil Coltrane, and the 70th Birthday of LSD. Then I read an Alan Moore interview he did for Believer magazine. So I emailed him and we got to chatting and it turned out we were both living in Massachusetts. So we met up a few times and I went to his book reading for his season of the witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. And that was at the Brookline Booksmith, who are also, by the way, now carrying my Nick Cave's Bar book. So if you're in the area, get it from them. It's a great independent bookshop. And Strange Attractor Press, who puts out some very cool stuff, a few things I reviewed for the quietest over the years, they started putting out Peter's books including this new anthology dealing with the inspirational and educational literary works that Gary Gygax listed in his Appendix N of the 1979 first edition Dungeon Master's Guide. And Peter wrote the intro and collected the stories, and well, let's get to him telling us all about it. All right, we're here today with Mr. Peter Biebergal. Did I get it right? Perfect. (laughs) How you doing, man? Good, good. Nice to see you. You too. So you've got a new book out, Appendix N, The Eldritch Roots of Dungeons and Dragons, which yes, I want sir. to talk to you about. How did you get into D&D? I got into D&D, in, well, I was always a fan of um, comics and fantasy and just sort of anything that was on the weird end of pop, pop culture spectrum as, as young as I can remember, mostly by way of monster movies and and uh, creepy and airy magazine and of course lord of the rings and all the various fantasy that was becoming very popular in the in the late 70s and fantasy and horror in particular and my brother i have an older brother uh had an older brother he passed away but he turned me he told he came home one day he's seven years older than me i think i was probably 10 or 11 at the time and he came home one day and said, hey, there's this, I heard about this new game that you might like called Dungeons and Dragons. And there's this funky little store in, here in Florida called The Complete Strategist that sells all these war games, which I also had never heard of. So we should go over and get it. So I think that, however, long after that, he drove me over to this shop and it wasn't just D&D at that moment. It opened me up into this whole world of wargaming and fantasy gaming culture, which included everything from, you know, very historically rigorous games like Panzer Blitz with huge maps and hundreds of little die cut pieces to fantasy miniatures and magazines and and then of course all the at the time there weren't a lot but there was Dungeons and Dragons and again called Tunnels and Trolls and it also felt very um I wouldn't say it felt underground but it definitely was not mainstream and everything about it felt kind of bespoke everything felt kind of handmade and DIY. I didn't have terms for it then, but I would often comment that and have often commented that when I, in my later teens became 
sort of became part of the Boston um, hardcore scene, not as a musician, but as a fan, that punk hardcore culture in the 80s felt a lot like early role-playing game culture in terms of a lot of the DIY quality to things like fanzines and, you know, small press uh, things that you could only get through the mail, small community of weirdos, you know, <laughs> who are sort of all into the same thing. There was a shop in Harvard Square. Was that called the Complete Strategist? No, there was. Well, it's Pandemonium Books and Games now, but I think at the time it was called just the Fantasy fantasy Fiction, Fantasy and Science Fiction Bookstore or something like that. And that was back then. Yeah, that that's now in Central Square, but it has a lineage. It's connected. Um but Harvard Square was ripe for all of that as well. I mean, I didn't end up in because we moved to Boston from Florida. I originally was from Boston. We only lived in Florida for a short period of time, and then so we you could discover D and D. That's right. I discovered D and D in Florida, and then discovered punk and <laughs> when we moved to Boston. But there's also a shop that I've been buying comics from since I was probably 15 or 16 years old and I'm 54 now called the million year picnic, which I think, you know, I think we uh, met there yeah. once. I think so. Yeah. Um, and um, the proprietor, Tony's a really fantastic guy in any event, you know, even that shop, all, all of the things in my life that I've loved and have continued to love all still feel like I've, the sense that the complete strategist gave me, whether it's a tiny little record shop or a a science fiction bookstore or a comic shop, you know, that just that it's not just the sense of it being smallish in the community, but there's in all of those kinds of stores, there's opportunities to find things that you wouldn't normally find in other ways. Right. Yes. And that's what I love so much about the physical record shops, bookshops, exactly. comic shops as well. But for me growing up, it was always record shops. Right. The culture surrounding it, you know, the people who owned it were usually very cool and, you know, maybe not eager, but they engaged you in conversation that would introduce you to a ton of new stuff that yes. you wouldn't have discovered elsewhere. Yes. In, um, in Salem, Massachusetts, when I was getting into music, after we moved, um, there was a store called the Record Exchange, which was, you know, used in new records. But that was where I found all the early pressings of Minor Threat stuff and all the 45s of all the Discord house material. That that stuff wasn't available anywhere else, yeah. at least in the suburbs. You know, I could go yeah. into Boston, but in terms of growing up in the suburbs around Boston, you know, I really relied on those kinds of record stores. Um, and so I think so to say that the complete strategist introduced me and where to sort of this hobby to role playing games and wargaming culture. It also, I think, just introduced me overall to a sense that there were other, there was other ephemera, there was other awesome stuff to be found in places that, you know, you might not normally think to go unless you were specifically oriented towards that. And so becoming, you know, discovering that world and it opening me up to just the idea that there were other ways of, you know, um, thinking about culture and how culture was produced, you know, especially the handmade 
sort of quality of some of this material at the time um, has really, you know, has continued to be just a part of my life in, in any case, right? So that's interesting. You mentioned a sort of test connection and feel to the uh, Boston hardcore scene later on. Was there an actual, like, did other hardcore kids? Were they into role playing games? If if we were, we I mean, a couple of my friends were, but we didn't. We weren't playing them anymore. I'd stopped. Oh, okay. By that point, because I was just much more interested in sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know. <laughs> um, and so, you know, those. But I didn't see those things. I wasn't embarrassed by them. They just weren't on the. We just didn't do it. We were doing other things. We were out. We were at shows. We were chasing girls. We were getting drunk, you know, all the things that you do when you're 16, 17 years old in the city. And, um, with my, you know, um, army Navy store combat boots and, <laughs> you know, um, leather jacket. So, but it was, it, 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 when I got back into role-playing games as an adult, it was, it still just all felt like a natural thing it, it wasn't again there it, there was never a sense that i pretended or ever or, or ever suggested that i hadn't played or that i was embarrassed by it, it just um but yeah no it, it definitely is a punk i definitely turned my attention to other okay. to other things you know but 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 the attendant stuff around that comics and you know, monster magazines and movies and all of that. I mean, that, that's sort of like the, um, the landscape of my consciousness, you know, whether it's I'm playing games or, or, or at the time going to hardcore shows or whatever it was, I've, I've never stopped collecting comics and, you know, um, reading fantasy novels. And, you know, I mean, that's always, uh, been the landscape so in some ways those are probably more core to my sensibility than even the games themselves but just you know sort of the the idea of these sort of fantastical worlds and ideas and role-playing games for me are just one really excellent way to explore those those things and those ideas you know as, rather than the default thing itself yeah i guess so like backing up a step or two uh where does your interest in the supernatural come from you know? uh, yeah i mean that's all that all connects similarly i think more rising out of my love of monsters and monster culture especially in the 70s and Monster culture exposed me, whether it was monster movies from Creature Double Feature or watching uh, Late Night in Framingham. There was a show called Simon Sanctorum that would show all the old horror movies and sort of like a Creature Double Feature, you know. And so those all also exposed me to sort of supernatural things because many monsters are sort of arise out of uh, mythologies that involve the supernatural. So I was always fascinated by that. And I think just, um, I think it just goes to a kind of personality that I share with a lot of 
friends uh, and and sort of you know online compatriots now that are just interested and find things just beyond the veil <laughs> you know fascinating and um so that's just always been something and then i became interested in religion i studied religion for many years in college and in graduate school and, but i don't feel like these things are in any way they're all to me just a piece of thinking about the imagination and the way in which we give meaning to the imagination and how things like games and things like certain ideas about the supernatural or ideas about religion and the occult are all sort of consciousness expanders hmm. in a way, you know, they just get us to kind of thinking um, sort of, using different maps, I think is a way I like to talk about it. You know, they're just different maps. They're not the territory, right? Yeah. They're just, they're just, they're, it's like a, you know, I think of my friend, uh, Ezra Glenn, he's a scholar, he's a, um, film critic and urban studies scholar. And he, he works at MIT in the, um, department of urban studies and planning, but he and I share, and mainly through his influence and influence, an interest in psychogeography, right? And the idea that that places that we anything can be a map, and anything can be used as a way to map an area. So you could be walking down a street that you know very well, and if you were to draw it for somebody to find their way around, you might use particular kinds of markers, street names, um, street numbers, certain landmarks, but you could also walk down the same street and allow yourself to see how anything that you encounter reminds you of another memory or a dream or a novel or anything. And those things can become maps. Yeah. So you could map an entire neighborhood on memories that you've had. And maybe they aren't even memories about that neighborhood, right? They're yeah. just, right. And so I think that when we think about all of these things that we're sort of talking about right now, that they're, just other ways of navigating sort of the landscapes of our, I mean, I don't mean to use these sort of highfalutin terms, but, you know, navigate the landscape of our imagination, really. And I think role-playing games are just a really unique way of being able to do that, especially in collaboration with other people. Mm. Um, but the thing about Appendix N and wanting to put together an anthology is that again, all of this for me goes back to the sort of the literature, right? That makes all this, all this thinking possible. Mm, yeah. And so it, it's about, yes, here are the, here's the game, but none of these ideas or at least none of these, none of these creatures or the ideas of magic or, the idea that one might even have a sort of heroic, fantastical 
encounter with some other entity is all grounded in nothing. None of it's from a, in a vacuum, right? So there's the there's the literature that inspired the make the the designers of these games themselves. In this case, Gary Gygax put together this list called Appendix N, and it appears in the first edition of the Dungeon Master's Guide for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And he describes it as when he was a kid growing up and loving stories and his dad would tell him stories of myth and legend. And then he became enamored with all the great pulp fantasy and science fiction literature. And when he was thinking about D&D and, and designing this game, these were this was sort of the list of books that he feels had the most impact on him. Some... Yes, having directly to do with the rules, but most of them, I think, having more to do with the sensibility that he wanted for the game, the, the kinds of adventures he was imagining were drawn from a lot of the stories and, and no novels that he loved, like a Conan the Barbarian or some weird H.P. Lovecraft uh, tale that exists in in the dreamlands or you know whatever all all of those all of those influences so this this list that appears in this book are what he names as those having probably the most profound effect although he does go on to say that the list itself is not exhaustive these are just sort of so, somebody commented that Maybe they were just the ones that he could see on his shelf at the time, you know, <laughs> or, you know. Um, and so this, my anthology was just an attempt to extract from that list based on some criteria. Uh, uh, what I hope is a, a pretty good snapshot of those influences on Gary Gygax and the, and the game itself. Yeah, I, I just mentioned about the rules. Uh, this struck me in your intro that um, I forget what story it was, but it was the inspiration that a magic user would have to rest to regain the power to cast spells. That's Otherwise, right. you know, they'd just be fireballing everything, and you know, it's <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Course. Yeah, that's right. I, I never that never really occurred to me before. I was like, oh yeah, you know, of course that came from somewhere. Yeah, Jack Vance was the author, um, and they call it Vankian magic as sort of a term that's used to refer to him. And I think that was also, at the time, a way of not making magic users, you know, again, just these fireball cannons, right, yeah. that would completely, um, disem you know, the, the balance of the game would be completely off. D&D &D today is a little bit more forgiving of that. I'm playing a version of 5th edition right now with some um, middle school kids through a, a, a clinic uh, uh, that teaches. It's a clinic for kids who are on the spectrum specifically. So I'm playing with a couple of 12 and 13 year olds that have, um, they're very high functioning, but they are, they are considered to, you know, have a spectrum disorder. Um, probably diagnosed as autistic or, and one of the things where I'm seeing in that game, though playing 5e is say compared to the earlier versions of D and D is that magic users have something in this, in the fifth edition called cantrips, which are 
basically a couple of spells that you can use as much as you want, whenever you want. Ah. And some of those are fairly, you know, potent spells within the context of the game. I think a lot of people felt that it was playing a magic user in the early game. You got one spell, you could only use it once a day. And then you were just had nothing to do. (laughs) Really, Um, So, you know, I think that they wanted every character to feel like they had some, something to offer the, the party. So do you play D&D yourself? We never really talked about that. I, I, I have played before and I've always yeah. been interested in it. Cause I remember um, when I was young, like probably like six or seven, my older cousins would play it and they'd okay. all be like around the huge dining room table, all really into it. I was a bit too young to understand, but that excitement. And again, like that came through with music, like their excitement with music, like really rubbed off on my taste, but with music, you know, I could listen to all that stuff where there's D and D there's a lot you know, to learn, to get started. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then I kind of played a couple campaigns with friends growing up as we were trying to figure it out, but we didn't have enough people to really, you know, make it happen. And then in college, I, I played it for a couple months, which was, which was fun. But yeah. again, that kind of group kind of split up. Yeah. So I would ask, was your brother into it? Like, did you guys? No, not at all. Not in the least. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was a cool. Yeah, he was into outdoor. motorcycles and hockey. Okay. You know, <laughs> And I was into neither. <laughs> but he did listen to great music, which is also, he also turned me on to my love of music as much as nice. uh, turning me on to D&D just because he heard about it and knew that I would like it. But it was his record collection that made me understand, you know, there was more than just the Bay City Rollers. <laughs> yeah, I really like the intro, you, uh, this, the sentence, uh, Orcs March to the Beat of Rush. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly so what yeah what sort of bands uh do you associate with the whole um well i mean now it's completely changed i mean at the time again i guess i don't know if it's there's a, a sounds that are associated with this with a scene i think for me it was loving story rock as a kid like sticks and rush and kansas and all of that so that became very much just by virtue of it also being the 70s, sort of the soundtrack in my head of what D&D was. Okay. Right? But it was also the soundtrack of my Avengers and Fantastic Four comics, similarly. But yes, there was something about, you know, um, and the men who hold high places, you know. <laughs> must be the ones, <laughs> must be to, start. The ones to start. <laughs> you know, I mean, of course, it's. D&D, right? I mean, when you're Excellent. when you're 11 years old. So, um, but there's a, a really great subculture of uh, of both, I think, music and role playing intersection right now called Dungeon Synth. Oh yeah, everyone's really into this. I don't. Oh, know it's very know. very cool. Yeah, okay. I mean, a lo- I think it's I think its roots are in sort of doom and um, black metal. But then you sort of take those themes, you take out the Cookie Monster, you know, vocals, and you mythologize it even more, right? And a lot of it's done on synth. So it has this both kind of 8-bit role playing, 8-bit computer game tied to this kind of 
doom metal tied to Elric and Mount Doom <laughs> and Conan sensibilities, you know. Um, it's really fun. And I actually uh, sometimes use Dungeon Synth as a background. Okay. Yeah. So when I'm, when I'm uh, running a game with friends. Yeah, you have a Dungeon Master listed in your Twitter info. Have you always been the DM? Yeah, although I've, I like, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. So yeah. I like, I still like to play. And I've, you know, I've definitely, in the group that I'm in, I, my main gaming group, we've been playing for, I don't even know, almost 10 years. And we take turns with different games. We don't, we haven't been doing like one long campaign. We, We'll, we'll play something for a while and somebody else will run a completely different game, not even D&D, but just different things. So, yeah, You mentioned Tunnels and Trolls. I'd never heard of Tunnels them. and Trolls, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. It, were they contemporaneous or was it like? Yeah, yep, they were. No, I mean, the something and something definitely is comes from the D&D. You're right. But no, Tunnels and Trolls was great because you could, it, they had solitaire adventures that you could buy. Oh. And when I was, uh, when I was first starting out, I didn't know anybody who wanted to play. And so Tunnels and Trolls, I could sort of play D&D &D, as it were, but it, it was sort of like, um, it was really just like those. Choose your own adventure? Yeah, choose your own adventure <laughs> books, but where, you know, turn to page five or turn, but it was heavy on the rules because it used tunnels and trolls rules. So you had to do a lot of dice rolling and you really had to build a character with certain attributes. And they're really, they're really great at the time. I don't know if they would hold up, but I love tunnels and trolls. I love the artwork in those. Yeah. They were a little bit more risque, the tunnels and trolls, uh -huh. you know, I mean, the one, the other thing about role-playing games for a, an 11 year old looking at that material, there was always an opportunity for some nudity in the drawings of these yeah. <laughs> early role-playing games, you know? So I think Tunnels and Trolls was maybe a little bit more open-minded than D&D, &D, which maybe was seeking a little bit more mainstream audience, but. Okay. I mean, yeah, the artwork was always fantastic. It was always very intriguing. It was completely new to me at the time. I mean, yes. I had the books just because, uh, yeah, you know, they looked cool. I didn't really know. Oh, what yeah, they're great. Yeah. I mean, some of my treasured possessions are some of these old D&D &D manuals that I probably would never even use necessarily, but I just, you know, love them for the art, for the presentation, everything about them. Do you have a favorite die? You mean like of sides? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you ask. I always really loved... I always really love the eight-sided die because it's like a diamond. Yes. <laughs> it's very satisfying. Very sharp points. Yeah. It's, it's, but it, I think that's, if I had to choose, it's my favorite. My least favorite is the four-sided. <laughs> and I also don't like that role-playing dice use numbers on the six-sided die instead of, you know, what are, I think they're called pips, you know, instead of the dots. Oh, the dots, yeah. Which I much prefer. So I will even go out of my way to find those to use instead of the ones with the actual numbers on them. <laughs> I remember that it was the 20-sided die. The idea of it just blew my mind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Polyhedral, yeah. And in fact, I think they found these, there are ancient versions of these 
um, polyhedral shapes that may have been used for some either gambling or divination purposes or something. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Did, did you, do you do any fantasy writing yourself like swords and sorcery sort of? No, stuff? no, I, I, I'd like to, I don't know. I mean, it's just not where, what I'm doing right now, but certainly I, I mean, did you um, grow it up? No, I, I, I probably tried my hand at something and maybe just in the creation of like D and D adventures, but no like stories or anything did, like that. Did you read Dragonlance? I didn't read those. Those were act, believe it or not. I was just starting to move out of D and D into, like I said, like becoming interested in music more mm. right around the time of the Dragonlance novels. Yeah. Did like you read beginning. those? Yeah. My older cousins love them and they passed them down to me. And I, really got into them like the first you know the first trilogy and the second yeah. trilogy i liked as well then it just went you know everywhere yeah uh, so, so let's see i think the first the trying to see in 1984 was the first one and in 1984 yeah that's that was probably peak maybe even starting to now um sort of i think the peak for me for hardcore scene in boston was was around like probably 83 84 yeah and then, okay what bands were yeah. going on then like ssd oh my god ssd as although they were known as ssd control then yeah. uh jerry's no see slap shots a little bit later, later. believe it okay. or not yeah. um and i missed i just sort of got out of the scene or just sort of stopped going to shows um around that time so i guess their first album was um eight nineteen eighty five yeah so um i mean the last show that i saw was i think suicidal tendencies wow at the channel in boston but yeah so jerry's kids dys fus that was sort of the boston scene and the shows that we were you know some of the big shows especially at a at, at the channel were Youth Brigade and the Misfits, Bad Brains. I imagine uh, the Misfits were, uh, you were that was, drawn to them. <laughs> that was so great. Yeah, I mean, they were perfect. They they captured everything for me, right? Monsters, punk, everything, yeah. Oh, Bad Brains back then must have been insane. I saw uh, them in 95 and it's still one of the most... They're still probably one of the seen. greatest bands of all time, right? I mean, there's no... yeah. yeah. Oh, we should talk about the book. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell me how it, it all came about. Like your idea to. I mean, it was really not very original. It was, gosh, nobody's ever put an anthology together of these stories that Gary Gygax lists as his influences. So I thought, why not? I had gone into it, though, thinking this will be really inexpensive to do because most I bet most I thought at the time most of the stories would be in the public domain. They're actually not. Only very few of them are. We most of the work of putting this book together was securing the rights, um, trying to find you know who the estate owners were, because sometimes it's not the family itself. They might have uh, a publisher who's handling the rights or um, other folks um, on their behalf. There's only. three living authors in the in the in the anthology oh wow. 
Um, and the other thing was I, I wanted to be able to do, I know a lot of what Gygax mentions are novels and I didn't really want to have novel excerpts. Yeah. I never liked those. It's not, it just doesn't work in a, I don't think in anthologies, I think people yeah. really want just a nice story. So sometimes what I was doing was he would name an author and their novels, but I would then have to search out a story that I felt even though it wasn't mentioned, captured the feel of those novels. So, um, so yes, there's there's definitely a controversy to be had that my picks are not a hundred percent, you know. But I did my best to, I think, capture the spirit. All the authors are listed there, and um, so there's a couple of authors that aren't listed by name but appear in anthologies that Guy gets himself names as an influence if that makes sense mm -hmm. so i pulled um from some of those from, well, from one of those in particular called swords against darkness and then there are just some things that i had never read before that were so fantastic to come across um the author lord dunsany who um all that stuff is now is actually available in the public domain but just absolutely wonderful and wondrous stories from him he's you know early uh early early uh 20th century um yeah, i've heard and, of a bunch in that scene but i've never actually read it yeah really great really great and um there was an author who i had never heard of by the name of david madison who appears in this anthology called swords against darkness and I could only find the only information I could find by him was that he only wrote a handful of stories at the time in the seventies, nearly seventies. Um, and then was to find out later that he killed himself when he was fairly young uh -huh. and was able to get in touch with somebody who had been a friend of his at the time. Um, who's actually still uh, writing fantasy. Oh, nice. Um, uh, and she, um, Amanda, let me make sure I get her last name correct. Uh, I think it's Salmonson. Um, she was kind enough to, and she actually is the owner of his estate, uh, of his um, copyrights. Oh. Yeah, uh, Jessica Amanda Salmonson is um, is the person who owns the uh, David Madison material. So she was kind enough to give me permission to use it. And, and, and some of the feed, most of the feedback I get about the appendix and anthology is people never having heard of him and have, and excited to have read this really great story by him. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So, um, and then of course there's the necessary Conan story and HP Lovecraft story and Michael Moorcock was <laughs> kind enough to let us use a uh, Elric, the first Elric tale, uh, the dreaming city. So, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, I imagine he had a big influence. I mean, he's just had so much stuff. Oh, huge. <laughs> but I, I think, I mean, his influence in some ways goes so beyond just D and D, but to music oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and other games. And, um, I think fantasy fiction in, in general, you know, did you ever get into any games that came, afterward like such like the card games like magic the gathering no i never did personally okay um did you ever play any of that kind of thing i played magic for a couple years in college I did, yeah. really into it i mean you can get i remember being introduced to it and being like 
eh. And then when like the second game, when I figured out how it worked, like we were just became obsessed and like, sure, you know, going to like uh, a comicopia in Kenmore Square. Oh, of course. And, like, yeah. Cards yeah. And then like, you know, driving out because we were living in, yep. you know, at BU and then like making trips into Somerville to go to those shops <laughs> to buy specific cards. Do you still have your decks? I do. <laughs> Any value? Do you have a uh, Black Lotus? I don't have a Black Lotus. I had a couple <laughs> cool cards. I can't remember what they were though. <laughs> Some of those cards are valuable. I know. I'll tell you my uh, one of my favorite uh, things that happened around this community of people was I was in Pandemonium Books and Games in Central Square, Cambridge. And for those that don't know, Central Square is really one of the last true urban outposts of Cambridge and you there's you know just there's always somebody yelling on the street that's sort of how I describe Central Square you know and Pandemonium Books and Games upstairs is where they keep all their all their books and some games and Magic the Gathering cards and you know all that stuff and then downstairs is where they have all their actual games and role-playing game books so I was down there in the basement browsing and I heard a, a police radio upstairs. And I, so I knew there was a cop in the store and I thought, oh no, there's some trouble in Central Square. Somebody's come into the store, there's something going on. So I went upstairs to see what was happening. And it was just a Cambridge cop there buying his Magic the Gathering cards. He was in there picking out, going through the books, looking for the ones he wanted. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was going to ask you something else. Oh, yeah. In the intro, you mentioned that um, I you offer what I hope to be a preview of the next volume of this anthology that's representative of the books and comics that came to define the D&D of your own childhood. Is this happening? Yeah, I mean, we're definitely, there's definitely a plan afoot to do a second volume of, of tales that I will, you know, so that you'll be curating more. I'll curate it. Yeah. But it will be more just on, it'll be my own list. This one, not Gary Gygax's appendix P. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Hey, that's it. There's a title. (laughs) Or appendix PB. Nice. (laughs) And (laughs) Jay. Right. Exactly. Do you, you have to keep secret about that for now, or do you? Uh... I mean, I just I'm in the midst of of thinking about what those stories are, but um, I'm hoping to do um, some things from the old uh, creepy and eerie magazines. Um, I'm planning on um, some more contemporary, you know, writers, um, but I'm still trying to stay within a kind of um, '70s, early '80s. Uh, science, um, fantasy, horror kind of sensibility, which is what was influencing me, you know? Yeah. I would, there was a, I f- again, I forget the guy's name, but the, in the anthology who um, wrote a character who was a, a guitar playing axe man who traveled the apple. Yeah. That's Manly Wade Wellman. Yeah. He, yeah. He's a, he's a bard. Yeah. And he goes, he's in the Appalachian mountains and, um, is hunting out supernatural uh, enemies. He's, I use a Manly Wade Wellman story, but not those, not one from those group of stories. 
Yeah, I actually marked that down to investigate. Yeah, that's my yeah. reading list. That seems yeah, very cool. Yes, um, you can get those, um, and it's thought that maybe that character um, was the um, uh, John Thunstone um, is the the bard that some people think might have been influencing of. Uh, Guy Gax's idea of having a bard character. In fact, there's a great write-up on the blog uh, called Grognardia, grognardia.blogspot.com, where uh, the um, author of that blog, who's a terrific guy, James Malazowski, I think I'm saying his name right, uh, writes about the Silver John stories, um, or John the Balladeer, he's called, and um, his possible uh, influence, you know, on sort of the bard class as a character in D and D. Yeah, because I, I found that an odd addition. It wasn't like for the, I guess because you already had the core. Yes, I thought a bard. <laughs> Maybe because my interest in music, how it would all fit in, I wasn't quite yes. sure. Actually, probably it comes from. You ever read Asterix? Oh, of course, yeah. Yes, like the bard in that probably threw me right. as to how that would right exactly but the bard in D&D can actually be a very powerful character yeah because uh, you have to have already acquired sort of a certain kind of experience to be able to be a bard what did you have a character you would always play I mean I was so unoriginal I the half elf ranger that's sort of like the the most you know iconic think in some ways boring character to play but um now i'm more likely to want to play something a little bit uh maybe like a necromancer or something a little bit you know what alignment were you usually always chaotic good yeah <laughs> it's the only it's the only alignment i know <laughs> <laughs> maybe new chaotic neutral, maybe yeah yeah there's pure something neutral, about yeah. it like if you're playing to like give to allow that side of yourself to come out that you know wouldn't uh yeah because you don't you want you want your character to be known that he's that he or she is not a jerk um but that you know you're not you're a rebel at heart you know yeah yeah <laughs> so magic usually didn't uh, have an appeal for you no, I always like that, but that's why I always like the the ranger class too, because they had access to some spells at higher yeah. levels, so you could sort of yeah. 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 For me, for some reason, I always wanted to be a. I think it was a half elf or an elf elf and magic user. Like it was always, yeah, that's good. Some, I've always been attracted to the idea of magic in any sort of. Form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, good. <laughs> um, magic users, like I said, now in the game are a lot more powerful, um, and I there's a class that's sort of like the warlock that their magic is innate so they don't have to learn spells mm. like the magic user is more like the the iconic you know wizard that has to study the old tomes and yeah there's something about that that appealed to me sort of like yeah an yeah it still appeals to me yeah, yeah exactly do the kids you're working with are they into it or did you have to like sort of coax them? No, they like the idea of it. I mean, I think that the challenges are not, the challenges are just that they um, have present, you know, spectrum disorder um, qualities, which means, you know, their affect is very, can be very low key. 
So it's it's about finding ways to engage with that kind of kid specifically. I mean, in some ways, it becomes less about playing D and D and more about how does one engage with kids who are on the spectrum, mm. yeah. and is D and D a good vehicle to do that? That's sort of what some of the questions I'm I'm working with these with these clinicians to sort of try to answer that question. There are is a lot of work though, um, sort of high level scholarly and um, community driven work on using D&D specifically to help kids on this who are autistic or on the spectrum sort of literally as like a therapeutic device. Interesting. Well, you know, because it's, it requires collaboration. It requires a level of empathy. It requires sort of having to sort of, you know, uh, in many ways, think outside of sort of your, whatever your, your narrow box might be, it makes you feel comfortable all the time and having to sort of push, push those boundaries a little bit. Um, I mean, I think that's true for anybody playing the game, but. Yeah. Did you ever have any like sort of uh, during a campaign, just like lots of anger? (laughs) over like what is what has happened i remember that happening a few times oh yeah of course yeah i mean i don't have any board flippers in any of my groups okay. but, uh, <laughs> yeah 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 no we've gotten into it um even with i mean i all the fellows i play with now are all we're all in our 50s and have our lives and everything but yeah we can we can not you know get in not liking the way things play out or somebody not acting the way they thought they should or yeah, for sure. (laughs) So what's next for you creatively? Um, I'm actually working with a fellow named JF Martell who does a podcast called weird studies. Do you know that podcast? No. Oh, you should check it out. I think uh, you'd like it. Um, And um, he he and I are writing a call of, uh, there's a role-playing game called call of Cthulhu. Yeah. And we're writing a, an adventure for that game. Oh, all right. And, um, and I'm also just working on what I hope is sort of like the next book. Um, and so, which I don't want to say much about, but you know, just always trying to keep busy. Yeah. Yeah. What are you listening to these days? You know, I was thinking a lot about this thing because I actually was thinking I should write him, you know, in all my years of loving all different kinds of music and and even going through a phase within the last couple of years of listening to stuff that feels to be even more experimental, atonal. Um, I found myself almost exclusively um listening to Bill Callahan and Smog. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> wasn't expecting that. But yeah. Yeah. Great yeah. stuff. Um but for new music right now I really love the new Goat Girl album, which if you haven't heard it is fantastic. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Um I've been listening to um Trying to think. Uh, actually, I'm just going to go and look and, and tell you what I've been listening to. Um, Bill, yeah, so Bill Callahan, obviously, and he has a great new album out called Gold Record. 
and just see. No, I've actually been going back and listening to Spiderland, Slint Spiderland. Remember that album? I do, yeah. <laughs> yep. And um, so that's been on the, that's been in regular rotation. I listen to a lot of Richard Dawson, the, um, the British folk. I don't even know if I'd call it folk music, but experimental folk musician. Hmm. Um, you know, then there's just stuff that I am always going back to, like, um, Huskadu and Minutemen and um, Firehose. I've been listening to a lot of the early Firehose. A couple of years ago, I pulled those out again. Yeah. Oh my God, that's so good. Yeah, really, really great. After I watched that Minutemen documentary, which I really yeah. enjoyed. Oh, I love that. I love that movie. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I, tr- you know, I try to keep up. I, li- I, you know, I read The Quietest and I, it's often where I, I find the stuff that is, I t- tends to be of interest to me. Um, and I, you know, I'm always going back to stuff from the sixties as well, I, but most cu- for current music right now, I would say the bands that I'm most excited about are, um, uh, 30 pounds of bone, um, goat girl and a, um, ridiculous sounding name for a band but whose music is absolutely phenomenal is tropical fuck storm have you heard their stuff yet no but i'm going to check that oh out. you have to check it out yeah <laughs> check out uh their the song you let my tires down was i think my the song i played the most uh, a couple of years ago yeah, and they that, have a new album coming out oh cool yeah, yeah. i'm on that <laughs> <laughs> exactly Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for yeah, absolutely. Always yes, you great, want to add great about to talk to you. No, no, I'm just happy to see you again and and have a chat. It's been a long time. Yeah, it has. It was good to catch up. All right. Hope you enjoyed that. Always good to catch up with Peter. Do check out his Appendix N anthology, The Eldritch Roots of Dungeons and Dragons. And I do hope he names his next one Appendix P. And check out the great British Blake off. My young Southpaw William Blake story up at virtualvisions.weebly.com. And there's 57 other Southpaw stories at the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast. That's at youngsouthpaw.com and all the podcast places. If you want to pick up my Nick Cave's Bar memoir, it's available everywhere online. And there's a list of the physical bookshops where it's at on my website, augstone.com, A-U-G-S-T-O-N-E. And support independent bookshops if you can. They can always special order it for you. And if you want to share any of this stuff or subscribe to or leave a review for the podcast, that's always much appreciated. Until next time.